morning, church. You guys can grab a seat. How's everyone doing this morning? Yeah, feeling good? Love it. Um, welcome. Got several new faces around, so welcome. Nice to see you guys. Welcome to Ethos Church, Hillsborough Village. Um, my name is Gentry. I'm on our pastoral and teaching team here at Ethos Hillsborough Village. Um, and yeah, I'm here to just say some words uh, for you guys this morning. That's, that's what I intend to do for the next like half hour. So here we go. We uh, are currently in the midst of a teaching series called To Live is Christ, where as a church family, we've just been sitting for like the last two or three months in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And today, in our journey through this letter, we really begin exploring chapter four. We finally made it. The last chapter in the book, here we are, uh, where Paul begins to bring this letter to a close. And this morning we're gonna be in Philippians chapter four, verses two and three. And through our series in Philippians, we've just kind of been inviting someone from the church to read the text aloud for us each week. Um, so would anyone be willing to read Philippians chapter four, verses two and three, either out of your Bible if you prefer, or it's up here on the screen? Just raise your hand, someone's willing. Yeah, let's go, man. Uh, I plead with... It's Euodia and Syntyche. Yep, it's weird. I plead with Syntyche. Uh, to be of the same mind in the Lord, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are on the book of life. Thank you, man. Who here is familiar with uh, the ancient Greek storyteller Aesop of Aesop's Fables? Yeah, most people, pretty well-known name. Uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you probably are. You just don't know it. This is the guy who we attribute stories like The Boy Who Cried Wolf and The Tortoise and the Hare to. He, uh, lots of fables are attributed to Aesop, uh, typically involving talking animals of some kind and a very apparent moral to the story or lesson or something to take away from. One of his fables is known as the lion and the four bulls. And it goes something like this. There once was a lion who used to prowl about in a field in which four oxen used to dwell, or four bulls. And often that lion tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, all the bulls turned their tails towards each other. And whichever way the lion approached from, he was met by the horns of the bulls. Eventually, perceiving that no attempt was to be made as long as this like, combination held, he began to devise a plan. He began to whisper lies to the oxen in order to stoke jealousies and rise divisions among them. And this new strategy worked pretty well. Eventually, the bulls grew cold and reserved towards each other. And finally, they began to fight and quarrel amongst themselves, and each of them went off to pasture alone in separate corners of the field. Then the lion was able to attack them one by one and make a meal and an end of all four of these bulls. And Aesop ends this fable with a well-known line. 
United we stand, divided we fall. Jesus himself said something very similar in Luke 11. When speaking to the Pharisees, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. Eugene Peterson paraphrases that verse and says, any country in civil war for very long is wasted, and a constantly squabbling family falls to pieces. This is what Paul is fighting against and trying to avoid in the Philippian church, where he's received word that two of the sisters in Philippi have come into a disagreement with one another that's so evident he in another city has received word of it and is writing to them. He appeals to them to come to common grounds, to come to an understanding with each other. These verses at the beginning of chapter four, they give us a real life example of the implications of one of Paul's major themes throughout the letter of Philippians, that theme of unity within the church. We see this theme of unity in earlier passage, like in chapter two, verse two, when Paul tells them, the Philippian church, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And in our text today, at the end of this letter, where Paul's been talking about unity, Paul urges them not just to have a philosophy of unity within their church, like not just to like the idea of unity, but to live it out in how they deal with one another and how they handle conflict how they handle reconciliation within the church. Because here's the truth. We all have a philosophy of unity. We all like the idea of unity. I mean, none of us like the idea of conflict. No one's like, yeah, let's stoke some conflict in the church or in my relationships. But often, many of us are too scared to put in the hard work of maintaining unity in the face of conflict. We have a false understanding of what peace is oftentimes where we're like, oh, well, let's just get along. Let's just get along. And it's more of peacekeeping than peacemaking or status quo keeping and not peacemaking. A true understanding of peacemaking is I'm going to do the hard work of reconciling this relationship, even if it kind of makes me uncomfortable if it makes the other person maybe upset or angry or hurt for a little while, so that we can live into a healthier relationship together. That's the goal, healthy, united relationship. And that is what Paul is encouraging with these two women. He sees between them this threat of danger And whatever was going on between them, we don't get the details of what it is, but it's important enough that he wrote it into a letter that is going to be read aloud before the whole church. And he sees this threat of danger, like a little crack in the foundation of a building, that without being addressed, and these two being reconciled in a healthy and Christ-like manner, it could lead to ruin and spiritual destruction within the Philippian church like the four four bulls in Aesop's tail who came into disagreement and allowed disagreement to divide them, it led to all of their destruction. Paul appeals for unity within the church. 
he entreats these two to agree in the Lord. Hang on to that phrase that's going to become important. Paul's not just using spiritual language or spiritually charged language, but he is being very intentional in what he is saying there, and we'll get to that in a bit. Additionally, it would seem that Paul does not see this disagreement as something that only stands between and affects these two women alone. But through his appeal to this true champion, we see that on some level, the church carries a responsibility for their reconciliation. I don't think Paul was advocating for everyone to get all tangled up in their personal business, but on some level, the church leadership and possibly the church family have a role to play in holding them accountable and in maintaining church unity. So why was Paul so interested in restoring unity and reconciling these two women? Why was this such a big deal to Paul? For that answer... We're going to take a little bit of time and trace a biblical theme of unity and reconciliation through scripture to get at the heart of why it mattered to Paul, why it mattered for the church in Philippi, and why it matters still for us today here in 2023 in how we live out our relationships as followers of Jesus. We're going to trace this theme of unity and reconciliation in four parts. Part one Union, part two, division, part three, reconciliation, and finally, part four, reconciliation continued. So let's just begin at the beginning with part one of unity or union. In Genesis 1, we get this account of creation where God speaks creation into existence. And in God's creation, he creates and orders things according to a specific pattern. Pastor and writer Tyler Staten points out this pattern of like but opposite parts that come together in union with each other all throughout God's creation. Day and night, land and sea, God and humanity. And Tyler goes on to point out that in Genesis 2, the story of God creating Adam, a case can be made that humanity was not originally created with a counterpart within creation. And God sees this and he says, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. That word suitable, it means corresponding to but opposite. And God takes the one human and splits them into two, making man and woman. And Adam is thrilled with the results of this. We hear him say, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God interjects with his voice here in the story and says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is important. You might be like, why are you giving this unnecessary detail? I thought we were talking about like conflict and reconciliation. But something very specific is happening here at the beginning of the story. God creates a counterpart for Adam out of Adam for the purpose of their union. It's this biblical theme of union and reunion. What 
Tim Mackey of the Bible Project calls the one becoming two, becoming one again. God takes the one human, splits him into two so that they can become one again in marriage. And the fact that God does this is revealing of his nature and the image of God. The whole biblical story is being foreshadowed here on page two of the Bible in this one little thing that's going on. It's not little. In this very pattern of creation of like but opposite parts uh, shows those attributes of God that the true counterpart of humanity is God himself. Side note, this is why the sanctity of biblical marriage between one man and one woman is held in such high regard by the church because marriage as intended is a sacred symbol of the story of God and the heart of God to be united with humanity. So with the creation of Eve, we see the one become two, become one again. In this reality, it foreshadows all that's to come in the biblical story from Genesis 3 on through to today. In Genesis 2 and 3, they take place in this land called Eden, where heaven and earth are united and one. Eden is where God and humanity dwell together as originally intended, but sadly, this union does not last long, which brings us to part two, division. Humanity, both Adam and Eve together, don't recognize God as their truly suitable counterpart. They choose a path that seems suitable to themselves apart from God. They listen to the lies of the serpent, lies that were aimed at bringing division between God and humanity. And everything begins to unravel and come apart from here. Like the voice of the lion in Aesop's fable, the voice of the serpent brings death to Adam and Eve because it brings division to God and humanity. And what once existed in its intended state of union has been split apart. The one become two. Heaven and earth separated as humanity is exiled from Eden by their own choosing. Humanity separated from the presence of God as originally intended. Which brings us to part three, reconciliation. Reconciliation is a fancy word that means to restore right relationships. And the relationship between God and humanity has been torn apart. And so God immediately sets into motion a plan to reconcile and unite humanity unto himself so that the two may dwell in union again. And this plan for reconciliation, it comes to its culmination in the person of Jesus, who when the glory of heaven stepped down to earth in order to reunite God and humanity once again. Paul speaks about this truth in his letter to the Ephesians, where in Ephesians he says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Christ's role on the cross was a role of reconciliation, of restoring right relationships between God and humanity, reuniting humanity to himself through the physical body of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. That's what the cross is. It's Jesus saying, come home, come back. I love you, I want to live with you, and I'm proving it right now by the way, by doing this, come home. Christ, the reconciler. But what about Philippi? What about today? What implications does this carry for how we are supposed to live out our relationships here in Nashville in 2023, right? Well, that is part four. Reconciliation continued. In the Gospel of John, right before Jesus is arrested, he's praying for his friends and disciples, and he prays this prayer. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples who are here with me, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's you, family of God. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So what was Jesus' prayer for his church on the night of his arrest? That his church would be one, united and whole. Because the church is to be an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality. And because that unity reveals the heart and the character of God. As the church, we are handed down the ministry of reconciliation by Jesus himself. So what does that look like practically as disciples of Jesus to carry on the ministry of reconciliation, to embody that heavenly reality here on earth as it is in heaven? Let's go back to Philippians, to Euodia and Syntyche. Paul is calling these two women in the church of Philippi to be reconciled unto one another because division in the unified body of Christ simply will not do as a reflection of who Jesus is. Friends, it is our calling as the church to embody the ministry of reconciliation within our church, within our lived relationships to embody reconciliation in how we live our lives, to embody this heart of union that God has, this heart of right relationship, especially in our life together as a church family. Last week, Josh talked about praying through tears, having a heart that breaks for those who have yet to be reconciled unto God. And this is our call to carry on the ministry of Christ, and that ministry begins in the body of Christ, within the church. 
And that's where we're focusing today, within the church. This text here in Philippians, and this biblical theme of unity and reconciliation, it has drastic implications for how we live into community and relate to others as we carry that ministry. And in both of those things, we have this calling as an ambassador of the gospel. And unity and reconciliation are the heartbeat of that calling. We are called, as the church, to live in community with one another, to have common unity with one another. If you read the New Testament, there was no such thing as a me and Jesus only spirituality. It was always designed to be done in community, in common unity with other fellow brothers and sisters in the family of God. And how we live in community as the church Paul calls us to maintain unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. And he exhorts Yodia and Syntyche and calls them to agree in the Lord and to operate in the unity of the spirit because the two have already become one under Christ. Paul looks at these two and he sees this division within the Philippian church, and he says, why are you dividing and trying to pull apart what God has already brought together? You're already one in Christ, so why are you trying to divide the one family? He calls them into living out this unity that they have received as a grace gift from Jesus. He says, don't cause division where there should be unity. Work to find unity, agree in the Lord. Now he's not calling one of them to like give up and roll over and like find, be a peacekeeper, but to be peacemakers, to find common ground, agree in the Lord. But he says, he's calling them to not be petty. Don't create factions and divisions and pockets of unity within the church, but as the church, be one whole and unified. Be one. Agree in the Lord, because you've already been made one in the Lord. He's entreating them to stand firm and be united because there is an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. And his tactic for destruction comes through lies that lead to quarrels and fighting and division. His desire, through any means possible, is to divide the kingdom of God and to pull as many away as he can and destroy any that he can. And Paul doesn't want his church to fall prey to that enemy who's seeking to divide, that enemy who will pick them off one by one if we let him get into our heart and allow us to harbor resentment and hostility towards our brothers and sisters. Paul's like, he's telling them, he's like, be like Jesus, the reconciler. In all things, in all your relationships, wherever you can, maintain unity. Be a reconciler. As ambassadors of Christ, in the ministry of reconciliation, we have to be a people who are willing to do the hard work of reconciliation. Excuse me. 
We have to be a family that is willing to do the hard work of reconciliation with each other, with our friends, with our roommates, with our families, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We as the church, we carry this call. As people who have been united and reconciled to God, we also reconcile with one another. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus tells his disciples, if you're offering a gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, stop what you're doing, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother then come and offer your gift. Paul's saying, if you're coming in to worship God, if you're coming in to seek to be with the Lord, and you've not righted wrongs with your earthly brothers and sisters, what are you doing? It's almost as if Jesus gives a prerequisite to being reconciled with our earthly relationships before we step into the presence of God who we have already been reconciled to through Jesus. That's heavy, church. That's heavy. Jesus commands us, forgive others so that your Father in heaven will forgive you. Thank goodness that Jesus himself laid out what it looks like to be a person who lives out reconciliation in our relationships. And here's what it looks like. When you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at the character of God, it begins with a confrontation of grace. A confrontation of grace is where a wrongdoing is stated. And it is not just stated to state that, hey, you hurt me, but it is stated alongside a roadmap and a lane of forgiveness and reconciliation. And then it requires the other person to walk in repentance. That's what reconciliation looks like. It's this two-way street of, hey, this happened, but I forgive you, and I will walk in repentance. Let's break this down a little bit more, starting with the confrontation of grace. We don't really like confrontation, do we? I, I definitely do not like confrontation. Any other Enneagram nines in the room this morning? Yep, Josh, I know that, yeah. So you guys really get me. I hate confrontation. I hate it, it is awful. My hands get shaky, my heart starts to beat really fast, I get back sweats, it's terrible. I hate it, it's terrible, I don't like it. But the first step to reconciliation is confrontation. The first step in our reconciliation with God was to be confronted with the grace of Christ. It is a grace to be told that we are in in the wrong. It is a gift to be told when we are in error. And there's something that needs to be fixed. Otherwise, we're walking in ignorance. We don't know that something needs to be reconciled oftentimes. And if we don't know that something needs to be reconciled, how could we ever restore right relationships? It requires us to be, as reconcilers, to be peacemakers, to be bold, and to speak truth in love. 
when a brother or sister has done something that wrongs or hurts us. It's on us to share that. Or maybe it's not even like a particular wrong against ourselves, but you see within your friends, within your brothers and sisters, destructive patterns in their lives or ruinous relational patterns. Maybe they just talk too much when they're around other people and it actually hinders their ability to create intimacy and go further in relationship and it's harmful and destructive. Maybe they make jokes about their wife a little too much, slash if at all, that's too much. Maybe they make other people uncomfortable by the way that they talk or behave. Maybe it's not a chronic issue, but it was just a one-time standing issue that we have to say, hey man, that was not cool. Do not do that again. These are things that oftentimes we honestly might just kind of like let slip by. It's not a big deal. Instead of confronting a source of relational destruction and immaturity in the lives of people that we love. And I'm not talking about when someone just like kind of annoys you because they're different than you or there's a personality quirk. That's a different thing. I'm talking about real destructive, sinful habits, even if they're minute. And the onus is on us as reconcilers to confront others when we have been hurt or when we see patterns of destruction and ruin in their lives. Just last week or the week before, I can't remember exactly, I was on a phone call with a brother of ours here at Hillsborough Village and we were just kind of catching up and we were having a great conversation and then in the midst of that conversation, he brought something up to me that I had recently done that had hurt him, made him upset, and probably made him a little bit angry. And he, was, he stated that he was generally over it at the time, but I am so thankful that he brought it up. He was not, it's not something that I had done maliciously. I hadn't done it intentionally. It wasn't to hurt him. It was something I had done purely out of ignorance. I didn't know it was an issue. But I needed to hear the truth of where I had fallen short. And it sucked. <laughs> it hurt. It was not fun. It's not fun when someone points out your own faults and immaturities. But like Jesus said, the truth will set you free. What was great about that confrontation, as he, as he confronted me about this thing, brought it up, I knew just from our relationship and the way he was speaking, he was speaking with so much compassion and so much grace. He was speaking the truth in love. It was not condemning. It wasn't to hurt me. It wasn't just to tell me how terrible and awful of a person I am and I'm done with you and we're out. It was, however, convicting. He saw where I had fallen short and where I needed to grow, and he let me know. And I'm thankful for that. Because while it was painful to hear, I was given an opportunity and the dignity to say, I'm sorry, I messed up, and I will not do that again, I'm sorry. It also allowed us to grow in maturity and in depth of relationship together. That's reconciliation. 
He just as easily could have said, not said anything. And it would have been okay, probably. He could have done the nice Christian thing of like, it's not a big deal. I'm over it. I'll silently forgive and forget. He doesn't even have to know. Like, it's fine. We've all done the easy, like, silent forgive and forget thing, right? Because that's just easier. And we've been trained to, like, not enter into conflicts in our, in our society and in our culture. It's easier just to, like, I'm just either just not, I'm going to stop talking to them or I'll just, like, let it go, whatever. But here's the problem. I think, I think, on some level, when we're talking about real stuff, silent forgiveness is a lie. I hold that open-handedly. But when we give in to our fear of confrontation, we lose the opportunity to truly restore right relationships. Because there's never repentance, because the person never knows what they've done. And often because there's never repentance, the wound never heals, and the tension is never resolved. And try as we often might, there's never actually forgiveness in our own hearts because we continue to carry it around when we silently forgive. And our friend also never receives the truth that will set them free. Proverbs 27 says, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. And this week, I was just realizing, honestly, just how unchristlike it is to silently forgive. Because Jesus never silently forgave us. He shouted it from the rooftops because he loves you. He declared, It's like the woman who is caught in adultery and everyone's ready to condemn her, throw stones, be done with the situation. And after everyone leaves, Jesus down there in the dirt with her says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Live in repentance, but we're good. Jesus doesn't take, he didn't take the easy way out in forgiving us to restore right relationships with God. He took the cross. He took the cross, y'all, and said, I'm doing this for you because I love you. Even if there is a reality where we can silently forgive, we really miss out on the true beauty and depth of relationship that comes through reconciliation. There are new layers of intimacy available for you when you walk through hard stuff with people because it requires you to be vulnerable. It requires you to be seen in ways that you might not prefer to be seen. If in my marriage, if me and Taylor never confronted each other about areas where we needed to grow in our relationship, one, it would probably be a pretty lousy marriage that we'd be pretty unhappy with. Two, we would be missing out on knowing each other on deeper levels that are available we would be missing out on intimacy. This is the way of Jesus. And we see it on display in the gospel story. In Jesus, new depths of intimacy and relationship are possible with God because of Christ's reconciling work on the cross. 
because Christ was willing to be vulnerable for you and hang naked on a cross for your sake. I don't think it gets much more vulnerable than that. So friends, let's be a people who speak truth in love. Let's be a people who desire to see our relationships and lives of our brothers and sisters flourish because they're walking in truth that leads to freedom. Let's be a people who are not afraid of confrontation for the sake of the easy way out. And let's be a people who are quick to forgive and eager to say, I'm sorry. And to walk in repentance. This is our call and command as a church. And why? Because we're called to exemplify the unity and reconciliation of Christ in our relationships. We're all called to be little Christs, little reconcilers who carry on the ministry of Christ by being like Christ. So as we move to communion, I've got a few reflection questions for us. Um, If you're new or visiting, so glad you're here. Oftentimes we kind of like circle up with people. There's an invitation to circle up and discuss, but there is no pressure to circle up and discuss. Um, You're welcome to Uh, reflect on these questions on your own and just with God in prayer. But here's some some questions to think through. One, do you struggle to speak truth compassionately? And that one's kind of a double-edged sword. One, do you struggle to speak the truth to people, to confront people? Or maybe, uh, if you don't struggle to speak the truth, do you struggle to speak the truth compassionately? with love, not from a place of condemning and destroying, but from a place of reconciling? Two, do you struggle to accept criticism when someone brings something to you? Are you able to receive that and walk in repentance? And three, if you don't get to all of them, just stick with this one maybe. Is there anyone in your life who you need to reconcile with, either by speaking truth and love or by repenting from a wrongdoing that you've done against them? So I'm gonna give us like the next five to seven minutes to reflect either on your own or with your neighbors and then I'll come back up to lead us in communion.